Thanks for listening to the Henry Center podcast. We seek to bridge the gap between the academy and the church by cultivating resources and communities that advance Christian wisdom. If you'd like to learn more about the Henry Center, please visit our website at henrycenter.org. There you can find hundreds of articles, videos, and publications which promote theological understanding. The best way to stay connected with us is to subscribe to our newsletter, though you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're able, we'd love to see you at one of our upcoming events, hosted at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Our public lectures feature scholars and pastors offering careful reflection on a range of biblical, theological, and ecclesial topics. We hope you enjoy today's discussion. If you like your theological steak well done, perhaps with a reformed blue cheese crust, you probably like Augustine. I think of myself as more or less Augustinian, but am I truly Augustinian when it comes to reading Genesis 1? My primary aim is to shine light on literality, not on Genesis 1, but that would be a welcome byproduct. I want to ask, what does it mean to take the creation account of Genesis 1 literally? And is doing so a good thing or a bad thing, hermeneutically speaking? There's a difference of opinion, even among evangelicals, as to whether or not reading Genesis 1 literally illumines rather than obscures the text. And God said, let there be light, and behold, it was the evening and morning of the first day of a millennial-long conflict of biblical interpreters. So I want to examine literality in the light of day, the six-day creation story of Genesis 1, and to explore the meaning of day in the light of literality. If daylight and literal days were not difficult enough, I'm also going to consider the question of daytime. And now we're indeed in deep trouble. You remember Augustine's comment, I know what time is until you ask me. Nevertheless, we cannot avoid the question because time lies at the heart of the issue, the literal length of creation days. Time presents challenges to literality. If you've ever used a sundial, you'll know that the way to tell time is to measure spatial motion. Shedding light on literality therefore involves nothing less than thinking how language itself appears to reflect the primacy of space and time. The distinction between nouns, which prototypically denote physical entities, and verbs, which denote actions. The days of Genesis force the question, what is a literal day? What does it have to do with literal light and linguistic literality? What's really at stake in all this, of course, is biblical authority, the interpretive question about the meaning of Genesis 1, but also the canonical question concerning the relationship between God's mighty acts in the history of the world, his mighty acts in proto-history, the creation, and his mighty acts in redemption. We begin with James Barr's observation. There is no field of human thought in which the concept of the literal is as much used as in understanding the Bible. 
Now, if that's true, that's a significant claim and one that behooves us to think even harder about what we mean by literality. So, in search of an authoritative definition, what I typically do is consult the Oxford English Dictionary, and you find four entries under literal, taking the words in their usual or most basic sense, that is, not figurative, or of a translation, a literal translation represents the exact words of the original text. There's also the sense three of lacking imagination, and then four in of or expressed by a letter of the alphabet. Uh, derived from the Latin litera, which means letter. And this last meaning of literal is also biblical. Paul refers to the law of Moses as carved in letters, gramma, on stone. And his own writing is composed of large letters, Galatians 6.11. So the Greek term in both instances is gramma. We get our English term grammatical from that. And it's translated in the Latin vulgate by litera. Now, there's a direct line between doing theology in accordance with the scriptures and reading scripture in accordance with the letter, ad literam. Though Aquinas held to the medieval understanding of the fourfold sense of the Bible, he also held that all the senses are founded on one, the literal, from which alone any argument can be drawn. Now, while Barr may be right, that Christian theologians have a greater vested interest in the concept of literality than anyone else, this has not led Christian theologians to achieve a consensus on the definition. So instead of reifying an abstraction, literality, we would be, do better to specify whose use or whose idea of literality we have in mind. So for example, Barr, Barr says that literality for moderns essentially means physicality, that simple common sense one-to-one -one correspondence between the entities referred to and the words of the text. This view tends to equate literality with historical reference or the empirical sense of the letter. Taking the Bible literally here means identifying the objects, events, and persons to which it refers. No more, no less. In Barr's words, Literality should properly require that, just as nothing that is there in words should be ignored, so nothing that is not there in the words should be allowed in exegesis. I think it's fair to describe this constriction of the literal to the empirical sense as the secularization of literality. For some modern biblical scholars to read a literum is to read exclusively in terms of the seculum, the world. Now more recently, partly in reaction to the secularization of the letter, some theologians have tried to retrieve the sacred letter and thus to recover the depth dimension from what has become the modern shadow of its former self, literality. Uh, Catherine Green McRate's book, Ad Literum, probably comes closer than any other to my topic today inasmuch as she explores how Augustine, Calvin, and Bart read the plain sense, the literal sense, of Genesis 1 to 3. And the book's thesis, happily, is plainly stated. It's this. She says the literal sense should not be equated with the verbal sense only, or even with the intent of the historical author, or with any property of the text itself. Rather, she says, 
The literal sense, the way she thinks Augustine, Calvin, and Bart read the Bible, the literal sense is a combination of what she calls verbal sense and ruled reading. That is, reading ruled according to the rule of faith, the interpretive norm of the believing interpretive community, the church. The rule, however, is intratextual. The prior understanding of what the biblical texts are about comes from scripture. Ruled reading thus allows scripture to interpret itself. So I think there's a way to harmonize ruled reading and the idea that scripture interprets scripture. The modern secularization of the letter has provoked another attempt to recover the sacred letter. Uh, in Peter Lightheart's words, we get at the riches of scripture precisely by luxuriating in the letter, by squeezing everything we can from the text as written. And clearly he has been luxuriating. <laughs> when we reduce the literal sense to a means of conveying empirical information, scripture actually loses its power to shape our politics, our imaginations, and our theology. And Lightheart laments the shallowness of today's typical literal interpretation. He says, we've lost the Bible because we are no longer theologians of the letter. David Bentley Hart concurs. He said, the fathers read the letter with an exactingly scrupulous attention to what was written on the page, yet with the aim both of grasping what was there to be seen on the surface and of what was there to be discovered in the depths. Speaking of depths, we now turn our attention to Genesis 1 and the darkness that was over the face of the deep, and in particular, to the light that God separated from darkness. But as we'll see, it's an open question as to what, which is easier, shedding light on literality or speaking literally about light. Let me just remind you that my primary purpose in focusing on Genesis 1 is to get a better purchase on literality. And my wager is we'll get a better handle on Genesis 1 and literality by paying special attention to the creation of light and lights. So we begin with our theological ABCs, Augustine, Basel, and Calvin, but not in that order. Basel of Caesarea got the ball rolling by inventing a new genre of commentary, the hexameron a genre devoted to expounding the six days of Genesis. And this was a magisterial theological treatise, prompting Gregory of Nyssa to gush what the saintly Basil wrote about the creation of the world should suffice and alone take second place to the divinely inspired testament. Why can't I get endorsements like that? <laughs> now, Basil exercises considerable interpretive restraint. He is dismissive of allegorizing. When I hear the word of grass, I think of grass, he says. But what about light? When Basel hears the word light, what does he think of? Well, he tells us what happened when God created light. He says, the air was illumined, sending out dazzling rays in every direction to its uttermost bounds. And he speaks of the pleasure and delight that comes from basking in the light. I can't say sunbathing because Basel knows the sun wasn't created yet. Science can't explain this light, but the light in question, he thinks, derives from God's goodwill. He says, it was 
when that first created light was diffused and again drawn in according to the measure ordained by God, that day came and night succeeded. Now, no one struggled more mightily with the literal interpretation of Genesis than Augustine. He had this to say about uh, his second abortive attempt to write a commentary. He said, I wanted to test my capabilities in this truly most taxing and difficult work of literal interpretation. But in explaining the scriptures, my inexperience collapsed under the weight of so heavy a load. And before I had finished one book, I rested from this labor from which I could not endure. Master students take note. <laughs> but his third try, the literal meaning of Genesis, which covers only chapters one to three, this is widely acknowledged as one of Augustine's most significant works. He labored on it for 14 years, about the same time as he was writing De Trinitate. And his aim is to offer a little, literal interpretation. In his words, a faithful record of what happened. Though what literal meant for him differs from what it means to most modern commentators. For us, when we say what happened, we're typically thinking about empirical history. And it's precisely for this reason I love one scholar's unintentionally hilarious description of Augustine. He literally lived in the scriptures. So what is the literal or historical sense of in the beginning? Does it refer to the beginning of time? Or is it a reference to the word of God, the second person of the Trinity that was with God in the beginning and was, and was God? John 1.1, 1, 1, the word by whom all things were created. And God said, let there be light. And Augustine wants to know how to take this literally. Did God say it in time? or in eternity? Did he say it to himself or to someone else? Was there an audible sound as God pronounced it? And as we hear in the uh, event of the baptism of Jesus where there is an audible sound when he says, you are my beloved son. Was it like that? In what language does God speak? And immediately after asking this barrage of questions, Augustine comments to himself, but perhaps this is an absurdly material way of speculating on the matter. So the salient point is that literal meant for Augustine, first and foremost, that he was reading Genesis as a story about creation, not as a story of something else. Doesn't mean he's reading it as science. It means he's reading it as about creation. Well, to cut to the chase, Augustine sees the six days of creation not as 24-hour periods of time, but as a framework for describing what he took to be an instantaneous work. And sometimes when Augustine ponders two different interpretations that could both be supported by the text, he invokes the idea of verbal sense, authorial intention, and the rule of faith. Let us choose that one, that interpretation, which appears as certainly the meaning intended by the author. But if this is not clear, then at least we should choose an interpretation in keeping with the context of Scripture and in harmony with our faith. Now, outlandish and ignorant interpretations risk leading those outside the household of faith to scorn the opinion of sacred writers. And Augustine doesn't want to come up with silly scientific interpretations because the integrity of the gospel witness is at stake. So what does he say about the days and nights? 
He tries to understand light in its physical sense, but this leads to an intractable problem because he knows that the sun doesn't really go away during the night. He says, hence it is that for the 24 hours of the sun's circuit, there is always day in one place and night in another. This troubles him. Similar ruminations eventually lead him to the conclusion that Genesis 1-3 refers not to visible physical light, but to spiritual light, in particular to the knowledge of angels, the intellectual illumination of angels, those who came into being when God created the heavens. The first day, God gave angels the knowledge of creation through his word. Evening, says Augustine, refers to when the angels know creation, not as it is in the word, as in a form, as it were, but as it is in its own nature. And Augustine interprets the day-night distinction as thus referring to two types of knowledge, in the word, revelational, and in itself, phenomenal. I know what you're thinking, and so does Augustine. He's anticipated your objection that his interpretation of day and light is allegorical. So listen to his defense. He says, these interpretations, of course, are different from our ordinary understanding of light in the material sense. But it is not true that material light is literally light. And light referred to in Genesis is metaphorical light. That's really interesting. He doesn't want to concede the ground that the light Genesis is talking about is not literal light. But he goes on to suggest that the truer literal light is spiritual light, the knowledge of angels, and that the truest literal light is Jesus Christ, who declares himself the light of the world. Well, John Calvin began his commentary on Genesis more than a thousand years after Augustine. He doesn't discuss his own interpretive procedures in the same detail as Augustine does. We know he had the humanist's respect for the original languages and authorial intent. Like Augustine, though, he acknowledges that ultimately scripture is the product of divine authorial intent. But his humanism brings attention to the verbal sense, the narrative form, and authorial intention. These become primary for Calvin. And that leads him to disagree with Augustine. For example, he thinks it's frivolous to think that Moses intended the words in the beginning to refer to Christ. It's a long story about how it gets translated into Latin by principium, but uh, he doesn't like that, uh, that implication. There is no reference to Christ in Genesis 1-1, says, uh, says Calvin. In fact, reference to Christ doesn't come until two verses later. <laughs> Genesis 1-3. Calvin associates the and God said of Genesis 1-3 with the all things were made through him of John 1-3. That's where we get the first reference to Christ. The divine author doesn't mention speaking and hence the word of God until verse 3 because... In the act of distinguishing his wisdom, only then in creating light does his wisdom become conspicuous. It's a fascinating argument as to why Christ isn't mentioned until the creation of light. The word that was with God and was God from the beginning, that is from Genesis 1-1, only becomes manifest as wisdom when light is distinguished from darkness. 
Calvin does take issue with Augustine's error and his view of saying the world was created in a moment. For it is too violent a cavil to, content, to contend that Moses distributes the work which God perfected at once into six days for the mere purpose of conveying instruction. Let us rather conclude that God himself took the space of six days for the purpose of accommodating his works to the capacity of men. And then Calvin goes on to say that creating over a period of six days forces us human beings to pause and to reflect. And when we pause and reflect, we'll see that the order of the days has more than temporal sequence involved. Calvin says that what happened on day three, let the earth bring forth grass, Genesis 1.11, was not fortuitous. The plants and trees were created before the sun. Yes, that's unusual. But God is not ignorant of photosynthesis. He's the one who ordains the laws of nature. So what gives? Well, Calvin says the narrative takes this sequence so that we might learn to refer all things to God. He doesn't want us giving too much credit to the sun. All life ultimately must be referred to God. This life-giving property that the sun appears to have belongs properly to the Lord alone. So God creates the sun and the moon on day four after the plants and assigns them their particular office says Calvin, to teach us that all creatures, even the sun, are subject to God's will. Now, Calvin takes pains to remind us that Moses is not speaking as a philosopher or a scientist about these things. Moses isn't interested in the size of the sun and the moon. He's simply calling attention to what should be plain to our senses. We see by light. So it's wrong to censure Moses for being imprecise. Calvin says, for as it became a theologian, he had respect to us rather than to the stars. He's talking to us. He's trying to communicate in the way we experience the world. Calvin knows that the moon, which Moses called the lesser of the two great lights, he knows the moon is smaller than Saturn. He knows it. He says it. And moreover, on the question that perplexed Augustine, whether it was everywhere day at the same time somewhere, Calvin simply says, quote, I would rather leave undecided this question, nor is it very necessary to be known. Now, such restraint is conspicuously absent in the next group of interpreters I want to look at, the present-day creation scientists. I hope you see now that we have to be clear about light and literality before we can hope to have clarity about the length of the six days. Here's my formula. Length equals light times literality. The answer to this equation is, of course, disputed. You might say we're in the midst of another six-day war, not the 1967 Arab-Israeli combat, but what I call the Six-Day Origins War. And this basically amounts to a conflict of the literal versus the literary interpretation that we see in the very title of Kenneth Gentry's recent pro-Six-Day Creationist book. Uh, as it is written, hang on. <clears throat> I don't see the sun, I see the revolving colored wheel of doom. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know uh, what's happened here. Kenneth Gentry has written a book, As It Is Written, and the subtitle is The Genesis Account, Literal or Literary, Dismantling the Framework Hypothesis. The title itself is unfortunate, Liter literal or literary. Okay, there's the chart. As you can see then, a whopping 60% of the pastors chose the literal six-day creation view. And by the way, Donald Trump would die for such numbers. <laughs> I can only guess uh, what the majority, uh, why the majority would be so inclined. I can only guess why they voted in this way, but I strongly suspect that it has something to do with the alternatives, literal versus literary. The literary framework view credits Augustine as its patron saint. Remember, he thought that creation was instantaneous with the six days serving as a kind of artistic or pedagogical way of presenting God's work to the angels. More recent champions of this view include Bernard Ram, Meredith Klein, and Henri Blochet. And here I follow Blochet's account. The first thing that strikes me is Blochet's appeal to authorial intent. He says, the author's intention is not to supply us with a chronology about origins. Now remember, authorial intent, along with verbal sense, has been the spinal cord of literality. And Blochet believes the author is highlighting certain themes to develop a theology of the Sabbath. Now, the framework view recognizes the day as ordinary solar days, but he takes them in the context of a larger figurative whole. You've probably seen this chart. There are two triads with days one to three responding to the tohu of one, two, and days four, six responding to the emptiness, the bohu of creation. So God provides the basic forms of the universe during the first three days by making these distinctions. And then the next three days, he fills these forms with sun and moon, fish and fowls, and so on. The first three days are about the domains. The last three days are about their respective denizens. Now, Blochet notes how this framework solves the so-called problem of the fourth day with its delayed creation of the sun. And he acknowledges that this is such a relief from otherwise looking scientifically naive that one has to be careful not to espouse the theory simply because it's a wonderful marriage of convenience, a shotgun wedding insisted upon by the authoritative father science. No, Blochet vigorously protests his hermeneutical virginity and interpretive integrity. It's the text itself, not modern physics or biology, that constitutes the primary grounds for this framework reading, he says. Now, Interestingly, some medieval readers also recognized something like this broad framework. According to St. Bonaventure, the first three days of distinction reflect God's wisdom, while days four through six reflect the work of God's adornment and thus his goodness. And for, for uh, Bonaventure and for Blochet, everything leads up to the seventh day, which has no evening or morning, and hence no end, an eventual Sabbath rest for the wandering people of God. Now, though I regret the literal literary opposition, we can better understand and appreciate the literalists' suspicion of literary interpretations 
if we keep in mind their tendency to equate literal interpretation with the truthfulness of Scripture and their legitimate fear that once one begins reading literarily, it's often hard to find a non-arbitrary place to stop. As Kenneth Gentry puts it, the framework hypothesis promotes a risky hermeneutic. In contrast, a consistently literal interpretation leads to a young earth, which for the creationist becomes the crucial issue in the doctrine of creation. For the six-day literalist, if the earth is more than 6,000 years old, then it's not only good night literal moon, but good night biblical authority. So six-day creationists worry that their literary framework counterparts have bowed the knee to the golden calf of modern science. And one critic asks, if we did not live in this current age, could framework advocates even have dreamt of using day, evening, and morning figuratively? The sacred letter must never concede interpretation to secular numbers. It's therefore a matter of principle for the literalist not to change our interpretation of scripture, simply to make it accord with scientific theories, no matter how respectable you may look in doing so. But again, Blochet doesn't want to do that either. So when the six-day creationist states that the framework interpretation could never have been imagined before the modern era, I have to demur and respond, Augustine. <laughs> In addition to the foundational concerns about biblical authority, hermeneutical relativity, and theological novelty, six-day creationists also point to an internal problem with the framework theory. They don't think the triad symmetry is as neat as it first appears. For example, though waters are mentioned in day two, the domain of the water animals is mentioned in day five. In fact, uh, God gathers the waters again on day three, and only then does he call them seas. So that so throws off the symmetry between the seas and the water animals. Furthermore, the other problem they have is that 25 New Testament passages refer to Genesis 1 to 11, and the six-day creationists insist that all these, these New Testament passages, take the account literally. This brings me to the positive arguments six-day creationists offer, of which the most important is simply the observation that Genesis is a historical narrative. One creationist scholar went to amazing lengths to establish the genre of Genesis 1 through 2-3 as historical narrative. His proof had three parts, an argument from the doctrine of inspiration, and then a claim that the biblical author intended to refer to real events as a narrative were, and then a statistically rigorous, irrefutable proof that it is narrative. And this latter consisted of seven steps, including an investigation of the Vav consecutive, the so-called narrator's tense, that grammatical construction that accounts for sequence, and then, and then, and then. So after this author surveys the grammatical evidence, he concludes that the probability of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 being narrative is somewhere between 0.99942 and 999987 at a 99.5% confidence level. Hence, and this is the grand finale to his article, 
It is statistically indefensible to argue that Genesis is poetry. And I, for one, will sleep better tonight knowing that. <laughs> now, though literal six-day creationists appeal to Calvin as one of them, they insist that Genesis is realistic history, not anthropomorphic condescension. Gentry writes, the very historical character and foundational necessity of Genesis 1 compels us to adopt the lit literal, sequential nature of the six days. But I wonder, since they've appealed to Calvin, how well does that comport with what Calvin says about God's using the six days to, quote, accommodate his works to the capacity of man? Thesis, anyone? Another important six-day creationist staple is the argument from primary meaning, which, if I understand it correctly, boils down to this. Day means natural solar day, a 24-hour period of nighttime and daytime, which is why the author adds morning and evening. And let's not forget the corroborative testimony of Exodus 20.11 and Exodus 31.17. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth. What could be clearer? It all adds up to young earth creationism. So what's going on here? We have to ask, does a picture of literal interpretation hold them, literal six-day creationists, captive, and us along with them? I agree with John Walton. He says, it's not that evangelical scholars avoid literal interpretation. It's that literal is not a monolithic idea at least not as monolithic as the creationist suggests. John Lennox says there are different levels of literality and suggests we use the term literalistic when we're thinking of a word's ordinary sense and literal for the sense intended by the author. And I'm going to adopt this practice. This distinction, in fact, helps heal what Rowan Williams bemoans as the disastrous shrinkage of the literal sense in modern times. And if you're not impressed with the names I've dropped so far, how about this one? Tim Keller, <laughs> who admits that though he affirms the full authority of Scripture, he does not take the creation story literally. If I'm here critical of six-day scientific creationism, and I will be, it's not because I've capitulated to modern science. In fact, in many areas, I take a contrarian position to what modern science says. It's rather because of the nature and function of language, literature, and understanding. So if I demure from the creationist, it's not because of natural science, but biblical semantics and Christian dogmatics. And I want to explore whether cognitive linguistics may give us a better purchase and clarity about this elusive Pimpernel literality. So, my thesis is that literal six-day creationists inadvertently compromise rather than preserve the integrity of Scripture's verbal sense by confusing literal with literalistic interpretation. By literalistic, I'm referring to a certain interpretive ethos and practice and mentality that follows from the ideology of literalism. Vincent Cropanzano's study of literalism in American culture defines it as a style of interpretation that shares 10 features, 
including a focus on the referential rather than pragmatic dimension of language, an insistence on the single plain meaning of words, a stress on authorial intention, and the suspicion that figurative understanding is distorting. There are other things as well, but I wanted to highlight those. Well, here's Blochet's response to that last tendency. He says, it's essential to get rid of the deep-seated feeling once and for all that figurative language would be inferior to literal language, somewhat less worthy than God. And George Hunsinger, a theologian from Princeton, goes even further and says, literalism underestimates the mystery of God's otherness. To all such literalists, I say, go to the linguist, thou sluggard. <laughs> it is a literal truth, insufficiently acknowledged, that a biblical literalist in possession of a good book must be in want of a theory of language. Recent work in speech pragmatics, discourse analysis, and cognitive linguistics have challenged, if not falsified, the commonplace view that meaning is made up out of the literal sense of individual words. Vivian Evans, a leading cognitive linguist, says, the essential insight of this approach, literalism, is that word meanings are made up of atomic elements or compositions. Literalism stands or falls on the stability, that is, the context independence of word meanings. In literalism, the meaning of a sentence, call it the proposition, is truth conditional. That is, it's capable of referring to some object in the world that will make it either true or false. So the fundamental problem with literalism is that it attempts, I think, artificially to divorce word meaning from word meaning in use. A critic of biblical literalism associates it with what Alfred North Whitehead calls the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Here I have to recall the uh, positive things, though, that I said earlier about the literal sense. For example, the literal sense is the only proper sense on which to establish doctrine. I believe that. What I'm proposing here is that we distinguish between good and bad literality. Um, it's just like cholesterol. LDL, the bad cholesterol with too much lipoprotein, sticks to the walls of your blood vessels and narrows the passageways and eventually causes blockages that make it harder for your heart to circulate blood to the organs that need it. Similarly, <laughs> interpretive LDL, low discourse literality. <laughs> fails to appreciate what the authors are doing with their words, and thus the indispensable and pervasive contribution of figurative discourse. So LDL, the bad literal, results in the hardening of the semantic arteries, <laughs> causing blockages that make it harder for communications to get through. For example, those who understand everything literalistically typically fail to appreciate figures of speech. Keep your eye on the ball. And imagine if you're a literalist and you have to play the piano by ear only. <laughs> now, by way of contrast, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson argue that metaphor pervades our conceptual system and is a primary mechanism for understanding. We systematically use inference patterns from one conceptual domain to reason about another conceptual domain. 
In the beginning was conceptual metaphor and literate biblicism. HDL, high discourse literality, is alert to the various ways authors use words to mean things and to the possibility that the speaker's meaning is not the same as the literalistic sentence meaning. Good literal interpretation is sensitive to the way people use language, and so it acknowledges intended figures of speech as part and par parcel of the literal sense. For example, if I complain, my car is a tin can, most people know I'm using a figure of speech, or maybe not. Good literal interpretation is a mark of biblical literacy, the literate biblicism that was a humanist hallmark of the Protestant reformers. I think cognitive linguistics may help exposit and expound what Calvin had in mind in speaking of the creation narrative as God's accommodating his works to the capacity of men. Now, cognitive linguistics assumes that language reflects patterns of thought that these patterns of thought are largely metaphorical, and that the conceptual metaphors expressed in language derive from kinds of experience that beings like us can have. Conceptual organization within the human mind is a function of the way our species-specific bodies interact with our environments. And that's the bit that makes me think of what Calvin says about God accommodating language to our human capacity. For example, a concept like transcendence relies on our experience, our bodily experience, of what is above or beyond us, out of reach. Most cultures apparently associate up with something good and down with something bad. Many abstract concepts derive their meaning from our concrete sense of spatial position. So the conceptual metaphors we use to talk about reality are, to a large extent, a function of our embodied state. So here's the point. We don't simply look at metaphors. We see and look and live through them. Take, for example, the uh, metaphor, argument is war, or understanding is seeing. This is a conceptual metaphor. The one bit, the uh, target, uh, or, or organizes our thinking about the other one. The source organizes our thinking about the target. We say things like, I see what you mean. We use something from visual to talk about understanding. Or I take a different view. Or that sentence is not clear. Or Van Hooser's lecture was opaque. All these examples depict mental understanding in terms of physical sight. And the point is not that all concepts have to be literal in order to be true. We understand what's being said here. So uh, the question is, do such conceptual metaphors violate what some analytic philosophers consider their prime directive? Thou shalt not commit metaphor. Vivian Evans' work on the semantics of time may shed light on the literal days of creation. He writes, one of the key findings in cognitive linguistics is that time, a putatively abstract domain, appears to recruit conceptual structure from the more concrete domains of motion. But isn't this precisely what we see in Genesis 1, where time is measured first by the alteration of light and day, and eventually 
by the motions of the luminaries themselves, motions we perceive through our embodied senses. What is time? A literalist is hard-pressed to say, but, and Augustine was tongue-tied too, but not Vivian Evans, this cognitive linguistic, he says, time is essentially a metaphorized version of events undergoing motion. To what then do the six days of Genesis 1 refer? My tentative suggestion is that day functions in Genesis 1 as a conceptual metaphor drawn from our experience of space and motion. And it's a conceptual metaphor that enables us to think about God's creative activity in terms that are familiar to us, accommodated to our human capacity, namely the six days of a work week. The six days allow us to conceptualize in terms of human work days that Herman Bavink calls God's work days. Now, I'm open to the possibility that the topical and chronological arrangement of the six days coincide. God could have created things in six literal 24-hour days, no problem. But neither the text nor its literal interpretation demand that understanding. This conceptual metaphor days position is first cousin to, or maybe identical twins with, Jack Collins' analogical days position. And furthermore, I believe it also follows the reformers' best interpretive practice. Yes, Calvin advocated for the literal sense, but this alone doesn't deny the importance of the figurative sense. Because for the reformers, a sensitivity to the figurative is included as part of their attachment to the literal because it has to do with what the authors are doing with their words. I like the way Brian Cummings, an English professor uh, specializing in early modern studies, puts it. He says, the Reformation is as much about literary truth as it is about literal truth. Contrast that with Kenneth Gentry's book, where we have to choose between the literal and the literary. And now to some dogmatic reflections. As Abe Curavilla puts it in his Genesis, a theological commentary for preachers, interpreters are called to discern not only what the author is saying, but also what he is doing with what he is saying. And in light of that exacting requirement, I have sadly to conclude that literal six-day creationists have got it only half right. They've attended to the verbal sense, but not the authorial agency that gives this text is particular literary sense. Contra the literal six-day creationists, the age of the earth is not the crucial issue of doctrine. It's not a crucial issue of dogmatics. The doctrine of creation and Genesis itself is first and foremost about God's personal agency. God is the maker of all things, visible and invisible, earthly and heavenly. Now. The EFC statement of faith and the theological exposition that accompanies it gets this exactly right. Thank you, Greg Strand. <laughs> the length of the days in Genesis is of no better than third dogmatic rank. Uh, I think Gerhardus Voss gives a good summary statement of what is of first importance in the doctrine of creation. That external work of God by which he has produced heaven and earth, that is, the universe, 
out of nothing and has imparted to all things their nature. So first, ad extra, the external work of God. Creation is about God before it is about the origin of the world. And Calvin's opening argument in his Genesis makes it perfectly clear that that's what he values in Genesis and the creation narratives. He says, we know God, who is himself invisible, only through his works. So first and foremost, creation is an external work of God. It's how we know God, the creator. Secondly, ex nihilo, out of nothing. This may not be explicit in Genesis 1, but I believe it is the plain sense of Genesis 1 when read in canonical context. Alongside verses like John 1, Romans 4.17, Ephesians 3.9, and Hebrews 1.3, the last one reads, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then thirdly, uh, Voss says God imparted to all things their nature. He ordained their functions, as John Walton might say. If we had more time to develop this doctrine of creation, I might talk in terms of theodrama. Surprise. Uh, God creates from nothing. That's ontology. And he assigns functions. That's teleology. God is the producer, the stage designer, and director. He's building a habitat for humanity a theater of evangelical operations, a stage on which to engage his crown of his creation, human beings. Genesis 1, then, serves as the cosmic backdrop of this drama of redemption. And I'm even open to the possibility that the stage is a cosmic temple, in which case the six days would not be chronological, but dramatized days of cosmic temple inauguration. <laughs> I'm open to that. But I echo... Uh, J. Daryl Charles' introduction to the book, Reading Genesis 1 to 2, that God created all things material and immaterial is not to require common confession or agreement around how, when, and in what manner this process occurred in space-time. The church fathers and the reformers who offered literal interpretations were clear that Genesis 1 is offering an account of what God has done that's the literal, and I'm going to call that the theological literal, an account of what God has done. It's not interested in giving a scientific account of the origins of the universe. What matters to the author of Genesis is the wise power of God and the ordered goodness of creation. Literal six-day creationism is a classic instance of interpretive misdirection. We've been too concerned with the qualifying adjectives, six, or the nouns, days, when our focus should have been on the verbs for the simple reason, Calvin's reason, that we best identify God and understand his words by attending to and appreciating what he has done, his works. And though I think this should be the focus of our literal interpretation of Genesis 1. So what is God doing in Genesis 1? He's speaking about 40% of the verbs for divine action in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 are verbs of speech. God is a God who speaks and acts by speaking. So, I think I see the six days as conceptual metaphors for depicting the space-time of God's communicative action. 
Now, lest you think I've strayed too far from literality, let me return to the notion of the literal sense, the only sense that establishes doctrine, but I want to give it a decidedly theological twist. I want to introduce the notion of the theological literal, sibling perhaps to John Webster's theological theology. We have to think about literality theologically whenever God is either the author or the subject of literal discourse. And here in Genesis, he is both. Theological literal, then, can refer either to the divine authorial intent, what God is doing in and with the human words of Scripture, or to the way in which the human authors refer to God's activity. For example, Augustine says that the word wisdom is normally taken in a good sense referring to God or the angels or the rational soul. And then we speak of wise bees or ants because their works suggest an imitation of wisdom. This is a very important move that he's doing here. He's using God's wisdom as the literal touchstone for the meaning of wisdom. This, to me, I, this is why Augustinian, he's theologized the literal sense. He's presented the theological literal. And Genesis 1 does something similar. God promises, commands, asserts, as humans do, but God's speaking, the predominant action in this chapter, God's speaking has a potency that human speaking lacks. God's speech acts are generative. They bring into being. They assign proper function. Most importantly and impressively, God's speech acts are light and life-giving. The let there be light that constitutes creation is canonically connected to the incarnate light of the world in whose light is saving grace and truth. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6, about which John Lennox rightly notes, he says, Paul uses creation as a metaphor for what happens to a person at conversion. And the metaphor denotes something real at a deeper level than the merely physical. Point of clarification, to say that God literally speaks is not to say that God literalistically speaks. Remember, I'm practicing good literality. God really speaks. He acts communicatively with words, but he does not speak univocally, univocally like humans do, with tongues and teeth and vocal cords. So God literally speaks. I insist on that, but I'm not as insistent as concerns the mode of the speaking. God can do what humans do, but in his own godlike manner. So God speaks is a literal but analogical claim. It's analogical because divine discourse is both like and unlike human discourse. But I like the idea of the theological literal because it makes God speaking the paradigm and our speaking a kind of pale imitation. This is not metaphor because God speaking means that he actually performs illocutionary acts. By faith, says we, the author of Hebrews, we understand that the worlds have been framed by the word of God. And that's the framework theory I think that Christian theologians should care most about. It tells us that God is a personal speech agent 
and that the world has been brought into being and structured by God's speech. So the six days are conceptual metaphors, but the divine speaking is a theological literal. I may not hold a six 24-hour-a-day creation, but I am a literal speech act creationist. So what bearing does my proposal for a theological literal interpretation have for reading Genesis 1 as a historical narrative? Because after all, this is one of the key sticking points between the literalistic, bad literal, and literary, good literal interpretations. Jack Collins provides helpful light. He says, as I understand the word historical, it implies that the account is about real people and real events. It is not really about literary genre and thus not really about the details of a hermeneutic. Rather, it's about whether a text of any type can refer to things in the real world. What I want to highlight here is this important contrast. It's not between literal and figurative. It's between the historically referential and the historically non-referential. Genesis is no tame prose narrative. And Collins dubs it exalted prose narrative. And I'm inclined to call it something like theodramatic cosmological narrative. But I think we all agree that Genesis tells us the true story about what happened in the beginning. And so it's historical, though the primary focus is on identifying the producer of the cosmic drama and the purpose of the cosmic stage to be a habitat for humanity. Hans Frey says typological reading involves literalism at the level of the whole biblical story and thus of the depiction of the whole of historical reality. And I want to say something similar about the theological literal. Genesis 1 records true theodramatic history. The Genesis narrative historical because it describes reality, the actions of God, and presents a particular point of view on the action, the embodied human mosaic perspective. In conclusion then, I hope not only to have shown a bit of light on literality by representing it as what agents do with their words, but also in the process perhaps to have illumined our understanding of the literal interpretation of Genesis and especially God's speech agency. Of course, whereas God says, let there be light, I can say no more than may there be light and hope that I have shed a little. Thank you. <laughs>